I've been uh, looking into your faces for the last uh, 20 minutes or so, and I see a lot of male-female combinations, <laughs> which for some peculiar reason has brought to my mind the only story I know of a college freshman who may have been registering at this university for all I know, uh, but faced on that day uh, that myriad of questionnaires and uh, information items that uh, freshmen get when they register, and at some hour of the day he got one which said, among other things, do you believe in college marriages? And he uh, thought about it a minute and shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I guess if the colleges really love each other. <laughs> I don't know about college to college, but let me say something about uh, New Dean uh, to university. I am madly in love with you and the possibilities of coming to be with you. and. Uh, it seems to me that the engagement has been uh, too extended already, and I'm looking forward to the ceremony uh, about the 1st of July. We could talk, and I suppose you do have people come and talk to you about marriage. I won't. But it is June. Uh, <laughs> so let me talk about uh, the only other thing I can think of that's appropriate in June, and that's not uh, cut off Levi's or hay fever. It is a, a, something of a commencement circuit that I've been on. I've been with uh, big people and little people and young people and not so young people, uh, hearing across the length of the land that uh, commencements are not really the end but the beginning and things like that. But I've been so uh, taken and uh, virtually preoccupied with one recent experience that I'm going to ask your indulgence to let me share it with you tonight. It was unlike any other commencement or baccalaureate exercise I've ever attended or participated in myself. Uh, it was held one week ago last Thursday on the 23rd of May. There were 44 graduates, all male. They did not have traditional academic robes or caps or gowns. Their attire, to a man, was a light blue denim shirt and a dark blue denim pair of trousers. It was not held in a field house or a stadium or even a lovely auditorium. The exercise was held in a modest interdenominational chapel at the Utah State Prison. The graduating class were these 44 men who had completed successfully a year's course of Bible study, sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but open to all who would care to come and participate, and these 44 had. They represented more than a dozen different religions, and of course many of them had no formal religious affiliation at all. Uh, this very moment, a lot of images and impressions come back to my mind, and I hope I can catch those long enough to share some of them with you. One is of the delightful, tall and cordial and warm uh, inmate who conducted the exercise. He immediately 
warmed the group to the evening, about half of whom in the audience were pleasantly and appropriately called outsiders. Uh, he said he wanted them to know, particularly the outsiders, he was sure the inmates knew and could understand, he said he wanted the outsiders particularly to appreciate that uh, he was in prison even though he had hired one of the biggest criminal lawyers in America. And he said, it's only after I was through with the trial that I fully understood that designation. What it means is that he thought he was a lawyer and I think he's a criminal. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I remember the prayers. The opening prayer was given by a, well, I started to say a boy. Uh, I appropriately should say a young man, but he seemed like a boy and looked like a boy and uh, I think had not yet begun to shave. He gave there the first verbal and public prayer, according to the chaplain, that he'd ever given in his life. He was frightened to death. But it was a prayer of the heart, and uh, you would have needed to be there and to hear it to fully appreciate what that might have meant. He was in the prison for ten years to life on an armed robbery charge. The closing prayer was given by a man, I suppose, 45 or 50 years old, uh, a, a, just a pleasant, warm, uh, slightly chubby man who looked like he should have been somebody's uncle and undoubtedly was. He was in for a life term on second-degree murder. The choir sang, among other numbers, uh, the Hammerstein Romberg song, Stout-Hearted Men. And uh, if you could have seen the look on their faces and felt the feeling in their voices, you would have known something about stout-hearted men that you've never understood before. I think they did not, any two of them, cross paths on the same note at any given moment during the rendition. Uh, but it was a choir of angels. It, it, it really was. And when they said, when they sang, give me some men who are stout-hearted men who will fight for the rights they adore. Give me ten men who are stout-hearted men and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. They knew something about rights that were adored and lost and which were adored all the more because they were lost and perhaps desired more greatly because someday they might uh, return. Just a couple of other impressions. A young man who had made it out, he, he was now on the outside. He had come back to get his certificate and to encourage his colleagues. He said something, and I wrote it down. Call him Howard, though that isn't really his name. He looked out to his uh, colleagues, and he said, Guys, the perspective in prison is really bad. It really looks better on the outside. Try to remember that. And then he turned to the outsiders, to the friends and family who'd come in, and he said, You people are a light in a dark place. If it were not for love like yours, we would not be able to get from where we are to where we need to be. He was followed extemporaneously by another delightful young man who couldn't have been more than 20 years of age, who had been in and out very quickly, I think, in a course of less than eight months on good behavior, who talked about what it was like to be back out, to be keeping a job and dating girls and going to church and trying to live a moral and a law-abiding life. And he turned to friend and stranger alike and said, 
Please understand that those of us at the halfway house need faith and prayers too. We have re-entered a world of temptation. For all of that, I'd like to key off of one other comment unmentioned as yet. That was the concluding comment of Joseph William Free, who conducted the service, and who said when it was all over, with some emotion in his voice and a little uh, mist in his eyes, this is the most auspicious occasion of our year. I'm directly quoting. It is better than Christmas. It's better than Thanksgiving. It's even better than Mother's Day. It's better because we're enlightened, and that's as close as we come to being free. Well, the gates clanged uh, behind my wife and I that night, and we went home, and uh, I confess I couldn't sleep. Pat fell asleep. It was late. Our children were already asleep. I couldn't sleep. And they haunted me, uh, and do yet, and do at this pulpit, and that's why I choose to speak to you tonight as I do. I had, in the early hours of that morning, and have had somewhat since, feelings and thoughts and uh, a response to bondage and freedom and uh, their relationship to enlightenment and love in a way that I confess I have never had before, though I've studied those principles and read the doctrines and thought I had a pretty good feel for what all of that might have meant. Bill Free talked about enlightenment, and I confess that I was a little more enlightened and a little more free myself, with, with a couple of ideas. I only, I only get an idea about once every three months, and I was grateful to get uh, two or three there right in a row. <laughs> but somewhere in the middle of the night, I got a new impression of some old feelings. And let me just enumerate them for you, and perhaps that's all we need to do tonight. One is that God is just. Alma said, What? Do you suppose mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, Nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. Paul said to the Galatians, Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for as you sow, so shall you reap. <laughs> this strikes me uh, that that was put in a little more modern language by a co-ed at this school who came home after a computer date. She didn't date the computer. She, uh, she went with somebody that the computer lined her up with. She came home to her roommate and said, That is the most depressing thing in the world. And she said, What? And she said, To find out exactly what you deserve. <laughs> God is just. <laughs> and mercy cannot rob justice, or else God would not be God. And we must not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, so shall he reap. Now, one of the thoughts that came 
on top of remembering that God is just, one of the thoughts that came is that Paul really meant we, we reap in kind, uh, which is obvious to all of you, and I don't need to belabor that, but, but it came to me again that, you know, if we sow thistles, you, you don't really plan to get strawberries. Or if you sow hate, you don't really expect to participate in an abundance of love. And so you get back in kind that which you reap. But then another thought that came tumbling is, as I thought about these men in their blue, that it's one thing to reap in kind, but we reap somehow always in greater quantity. That we sow a little thistle and we get a lot of thistle. Years and years of it and big bushes and branches of it. And we never get rid of it unless we cut it out. Or we sow a little bit of hate, and uh, before we know it, we, we've reaped a lot of hate, uh, smoldering and festering and malicious and finally warring and belligerent and malicious hate. Which only says from a third prophet, Hosea, what all of us uh, need to be careful lest we learn personally. And that is that I think my new friends at the state institution understood more fully than I had what the ancient Old Testament prophet must have meant when he said they simply have sown the wind but reaped the whirlwind. They got back more of a kind than ever they planned on. Surely no one has ever set out, in the words of Harry Emerson Fosdick, to go straight to Sing Sing. I suppose that applies to our own institution at the point of the mountain. So that was a kind of one large thought, <laughs> that God is just and we really do reap what we sow and we maybe reap more than we thought we were sowing. But then coming on top of that was some comfort, ironically, that that, that wasn't as painful as it sounded. In this sense, that however frightening it may be to those of us who've sinned, the rest of you can leave. Uh, however frightening it may be to contemplate a just God, it is infinitely more frightening to me to contemplate an unjust God. Now, I, I suppose you're taking Humanities 101 or something along the way, aren't you? Uh, and I would be the last to disparage that which we have received in Western civilization from the good Greeks. But I, for one, I'm very glad that we, we are not submitting to the gods of Tantalus and Sisyphus and Prometheus. Uh, when those fellows had a bad day, everybody had a bad day. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I simply refer you to what, is a, what I think is a basic principle of, of, of Latter-day Saint doctrine. That is the true principle that we have to know that God is just in order to go forward. If you get a chance, uh, open to Joseph Smith's lectures on faith one evening and turn to lecture fourth and talk about a, and read about a basic little list of attributes which God has to have and which we know he does have, which enables us to have faith. That is, which, those principles which give us the courage to believe that it will be well with us if we do certain things. And one of those is justice. And we would not have the faith, due to the fear, uh, to live righteously or to love better or to repent more readily 
if somehow we didn't think that would count for us, if we thought that somehow God would change his mind and decide there was another set of rules. But because we know that God is just and would cease to be so, would cease to be God if he weren't so, then we have the faith, we have the makings and the beginnings and the foundation of faith to go forward and know that we will not somehow be the victim of whimsy or caprice or a bad day or a bad joke. And that somehow, to me, in a way that it never had been before, was very encouraging. But I had another thought. And the other thought was how grateful I am that in addition to being just, God decided, because He is who He is, that He had to be a merciful God as well. We don't need to take the time to read all of Alma 42, but you ought to, maybe tonight or whenever it seems appropriate. But there was a line in, in, in the 42nd chapter of Alma which, which stands out that I do have to refer to. That is that after we had established to Corianne that God had to be just, it was then determined that that same God would be merciful too and that the mercy would claim the penitent. Now the reason that was different to me in a new way is because I'd just been where they added I-A-R-Y to that word. And that gave me encouragement. Mercy could claim the penitent. And I decided if those guys have to go to that penitentiary to take advantage of the gift of mercy, if somehow by going there they found the gospel of Jesus Christ or found the scriptures or found the atonement or any of those things that might lead to the others, then it was worth it. Then let's go to the penitentiary or let's go to the bishop or let's go to the Lord or go to those that we've offended or go to those that have offended us. Our own little penitentiaries, I suppose, are all around us and, and if that's what it takes to be truly penitent to lay claim on the gift of mercy, then we have to do it. Now, that isn't easy. I know it isn't easy. It isn't easy to go back and to undo and to start again and to make a beginning. But I believe with all my heart that it is easier and surely more satisfying than to go on and believe that justice will not take its toll. As Richard L. Evans was fond of saying, what's the use of running if you're on the wrong road? A favorite British scholar said this, using the same metaphor, I don't really think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but I do think that their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A mathematical sum incorrectly work can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and then working it fresh from that point. It will never be corrected simply by going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Worlds without end. Time does not heal it, and the spell must be unwound.
God is just, but mercy claimeth the penitent, and the evil can be undone. The final, I guess, and kind of crowning thought that I had by this time, I don't know what hour of the morning it was, but I understood what maybe I've never understood. Really, I think literally had never quite understood. And that is why in every generation, to every dispensation, the Lord has said what he said in the sixth section and thereafter. See, that's very early in the doctrines of the dispensation. Say nothing but repentance unto this generation and keep my commandments. That became a very positive and a very helpful and a very moving thought and verse for me, knowing maybe in a way that I'd never understood before that there is no other way. Well, this seems awfully heavy. I, uh, let, me, let me shift gear slightly. Uh, none of you, I hope, are going to be whisked off to the point of the mountain uh, right after this. Uh, <laughs> some of you may hope that I am. Uh, and I would pray that there are no church courts pending on moral transgressions in your lives. But I believe if you're like any of the rest of us who are mortal, that you have some areas to unchain yourselves, that you have some bonds and some fetters that you could afford to be free of, that there is some repenting to be done in all of our lives and something less than the great dramatic sins and civil transgressions that we read about in the newspapers. May I just isolate two or three while your mind uh, plays with more than that? Uh, I, I confess that I cannot begin other than with what seems to me in a way the, the, the supreme bond at this level, and that is simply not to know enough. There are little, cliche, <laughs> there are little cliches that we learn uh, early in our lives, and most of them I hate. Uh, some of them I really hate. I think number one on my list is sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I hate that. I'll take sticks and stones any day. But second to that, I think, is ignorance is bliss, and what I don't know won't hurt me. Let me say to you with all of the intensity that I have that nothing will hurt you more than what you don't know. Plato said about as early as anybody started saying things outside of the Israelites. <laughs> Plato said, It is better to be unborn than untaught, for ignorance is at the root of all misfortune. And I don't know whether Sam Johnson knew we were going to be here tonight or not, or whether he knew I'd go to the prison or not. Don't go home and tell your parents uh, that I'd, you just heard from the prisoner. Uh, but this from Sam Johnson. Ignorance, when voluntary, when voluntary, is criminal. And a man may be properly charged with that evil which he neglected or refused to learn how to prevent. Ignorance when voluntary is criminal, and a man may rightly be charged with that offense.
and that evil which he refused and neglected and wished not to learn to prevent. But I don't want to talk just about book books, uh, about Plato's books and Sam Johnson's books. We believe in this church. We, we have it as a tenet of our faith that a man cannot be saved in ignorance. And that what we learn in this life rises with us in the resurrection. And that we have so much the advantage in the world to come. And that we're saved, in fact, somehow in proportion to that which we're learning. And that light and truth forsake the evil one and the glory of God is intelligence. And we go on and on and on. One, at one time in the history of this church, and I suppose maybe uh, in the Lord's eyes that's happened since a time or two. But the entire church collectively was indicted. Will you listen to this from the 84th section? I give unto you a commandment to beware concerning yourselves, to give diligent heed to the words of eternal life. Words. For you shall live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God, for the word of the Lord is truth. And whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And you're all familiar with what goes on from there. But the beginning, it seems to me, if we're talking about some kind of a ladder to get on the thing, to get started and to get where we need to be, ultimately into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is where section 84 takes us, the beginning of that, the first rung, if you will, of that little dialectic is the word. The word of the Lord is truth. Give heed to the words of eternal life. Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things you have received, even the Book of Mormon and the former commandments which I have given. Now, this is some book. I've wandered off to a school or two and read books in and out of libraries and... Uh, I didn't think there was any other world but the inside of a corral. Not to be confused with that place where you put cows and horses. I've never known a book. In all the searching that I've done and some of the reading that I've done, I've never found a book which was purported to have been brought by an angel and translated by the gift and power of God, except this one. And we treat it lightly. Your minds in times past have been darkened because you have treated lightly the things you have received, even the Book of Mormon and the former commandments. We treat it like almost any other book. Let it gather a little dust, press the rose from Mary Jane's wedding, uh, use it as a doorstop in the hallway, do almost anything with it but read it. And I believe that we will be indicted for the bondage that we incur, and we will serve some sentence in this life or the next for that which we fail to learn. I can't spend all evening on that. But please remember from the 15th chapter of John, if you abide in me and my words in you, then whatsoever you shall ask, it shall be done unto you. If you abide in me and my words in you. 
we're bonded and indentured and in servitude uh, too often to our own bodies. Uh, and I don't uh, here again mean uh, just the dramatic sins, uh, the anger and the temper that leads to murder or the passion that leads to sexual transgression or the lust that leads to theft. But even uh, beyond those, as serious as they are, and I suppose an entire evening ought to be spent on each of those, but other things. Uh, Paul said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. Um, The war in his members, which is a little heavy, that makes him huff and puff by the time he gets to the top of the stairs and go into cardiac arrest because he isn't jogging enough. Uh, The war of the mattress on his back, which he somehow cannot shake uh, in the morning, and he misses those precious and most inspirational hours of the day. Uh, The war of grooming and attention, which could do much for us uh, sometimes if we would. But beyond that, serious limitations on our body. I met two weeks ago for the first time a man I would like to meet again and uh, know more of. His name is Henry D. Stagg, Don Stagg, to his friends. Uh, He went to bed in uh, August of 1965 about the way everybody else goes to bed and about the way he had all of his life. The difference came the next morning when his body awoke and his eyes didn't. He was blind. And he was frightened. And he was more than that, he was terrified. And he went to the doctor and they gave him some guarded optimism about, uh, well, this thing sometimes doesn't last very long and it might just be an hour or two. Well, the hour stretched into days. And the days stretched into weeks and the weeks finally became a month. And Don Stagg could think only of one thing and that was suicide. He wanted out. Uh, He didn't ask for this kind of a body and he didn't suppose that he had to go on with it and he wanted out. Well, to make a long story short, Don Stagg found in the midst of his experience what one of the prisoners found. That is, it takes some love to get from where we are to where we need to be. And Mrs. Stagg, on one evening, had arranged to slip the children past the hospital security. They shuffled into the room, and Don did not know who was there. Uh, He was surly and arrogant almost all of the time by his own admission and didn't want to talk. But he felt these little hands on his legs and on his arms, and they said, uh, Daddy, we love you, and we want you to come home, and we don't want any other daddy. And so there was a little light in a dark place, and he went home and started that night and began to pace off the house. He first paced off the steps from the bedroom to the refrigerator. He says, it's one thing to be blind, it's another thing to starve to death. And when he had the house mastered, then he went out into the neighborhood and then up and down the streets and for miles away. And he decided he could do quite a little bit. And about two years after uh, the effects of this disease had taken his sight, he enrolled in the law school at the University of Utah. And in four years had passed that course and passed the state bar. And for one year worked for the Attorney General's office and now is in private practice. Don Stagg is blind and has some limitations and some bonds put upon him by his own body. But he is doing a great deal. He water skis, and he snow skis, 
And just a short time ago, he shot two under par at the Bonneville course in Salt Lake City. Now, there are some things he can't do. He cannot see the daughter who has been born to him since he's lost his sight. But he believes he will. And he believes that that will not be a limitation upon him and that he will not be bound down by that or anything else. And there's something in that kind of spirit which seems to me to break every kind of bond that might ever come in this life or the next. Life itself, external circumstances, seem to me to impose a good deal of bondage upon us. That is, we might be perfectly healthy, we might have a fine body and our eyesight, and we might even know a little bit. But life has cast us in a role, you know, somehow that we can't escape. Uh, Chris mentioned that I was born in St. George. Just offer that to you as an example of what... Uh, <laughs> tell you the only story I know about St. George, and that is uh, Brother Rolf Peterson, who used to be on the English in the English department here, once said that St. George was the only place in the continental United States that a harpsichord was a harpsichord. Uh, <laughs> Jay Golden Kimball on a state conference assignment down there one day said, I think if I owned the two, I would rather live in hell and try to rent St. George. Uh, well, so much about your limitations of birth and circumstance. There is the very famous story uh, which Elder Hanks told me as a missionary uh, a dozen years ago and which I'm pleased to see recorded in his recently published book. Uh, with his permission, I... Uh, repeat that little story for you because it's been a favorite of mine and I really believe in the principle that's being taught. The famed naturalist of the last century, Louis Agassiz, uh, was lecturing in London and had done a marvelous job and uh, obviously bright little old lady but uh, one who did not seem to have all the advantages in life had come up and, and was uh, spiteful. She was resentful and uh, said that she had never had the chance that uh, he'd had. And she hoped he appreciated it. Well, he kind of took that uh, bit of a lacing and then very pleasantly just turned to the lady and when she was through, said, what do you do? And she said, I run a boarding house with my sister. I'm unmarried. And uh, he said, well, well, what do you do at the boarding house? And she said, well, I skin potatoes and chop onions for the stew. We have stew every day. He said, well, where do you sit when you do that? Uh, interesting but homely task. She said, I sit on the bottom of the kitchen, the bottom step of the kitchen stairs. And he said, where do your feet rest when you sit there on that bottom step? And she said, on a glazed brick. And he said, what's a glazed brick? <laughs> and she said, I don't know. And he said, how long have you been sitting there? And she said, 15 years. And he said, here's my card. Would you write me a note when you get a moment? about what a glazed brick is. Well, that made her mad enough to go home and do it. She went home and got the dictionary out and found out that a brick was a piece of baked clay. That didn't seem enough to send to a Harvard professor. So she went to the encyclopedia and found out that a brick was made of vitrified kaolin and hydrous aluminum silicate, which didn't mean a thing to her. So she went to work. And she visited a brick factory and a tile maker, and she went back in history and studied a little bit about geology and learned something about clay and clay beds and what hydrous meant and what vitrified meant. And she began to soar out of the basement of a boarding house 
on the wings of words like vitrified kaolin and hydrous aluminum silicate. She uh, finally decided that there were, uh, in, in terms of research, that there were about 120 different kinds of glazed bricks and tiles, and she would tell Agassiz that and wrote him a little note of 36 pages and said, here's your glazed brick. He wrote back and said, uh, this is a fine piece of work. If you change this and that and the other, I'll prepare it for publication and send you uh, uh, that which is, which is due you from the publication. She thought no more of it, made the changes, sent it back, and uh, almost by return mail came a check for $250. He said, I've published your piece. What was under the brick? <laughs> and she said, ants. <laughs> And he said, all of this by mail, what's an ant? And she went to work. And this time she was excited. <laughs> she found 1,825 different kinds of ants. She found that there were ants that you could put three to a head of a pin and have a little sanding room left over. She found that there were ants an inch long that moved in an army half a mile wide and destroyed everything in their path. She found that there were blind ants. She found that there were ants who lost their wings on the afternoon that they died. She found that there were ants who milked cows and took the milk to the aristocrats up the street. She found more ants than anybody had ever found. And she wrote Mr. Agassiz something of a treatise numbering 360 pages. And he published it and sent her the money and royalties which continued to come in. And she saw the lands and places of her dreams. on a little carpet of vitrified kaolin and on the wings of ants that fly and maybe lose their wings on the afternoon they die. There is, uh, I would not minimize, and I don't mean to be uh, Pollyannish about the limitations of our circumstance and our environment and the battle that it is. But that's, that's in fact, uh, I'm not apologizing, I, I'm saying that that there is uh, a bond, that there are fetters that, uh, that are real, that don't get published in civil, civil courts or church councils, but about which we can do something. And we may be sitting with our feet on glazed bricks, for all I know. Uh, let me just conclude this thought of, about the other kinds of bonds that can come with, with one that perhaps is as serious as any. We may be bright and learned. We may be physically fit and fully capable. Uh, we may have all of the advantages of circumstance and environment and society. But there is a bond and a servitude and a limitation which, we're, if, if we're not careful, may in fact be more apparent and evident and to which we may be more vulnerable at that point than at almost any other time. For lack of something else to call it, let me call it the world. I want to read you just a couple of lines of uh, several very long lines. For that person striving to live righteously, this mortal existence is a testing time indeed. The faithful are plagued with the temptations of a world that appears to have lost itself in a snarled maze of ambiguity, mendacity, and threatening uncertainty. The challenge to live in the world but not of the world is a monumental one indeed. 
Our second estate is indeed a probationary state. The choices we're called upon to make every day of our lives call forth the exercise of our agency. That we fail so frequently to think and do that which is right is not evidence against the practicality of righteous living. We do not falter and stumble in the path of righteousness simply because we can do nothing else, but because too often we lose the vision of our relationship with God. The incessant din and cackling ado of this turbulent life drowned out the message which asserts that as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. If we will not dance to the music of materialism and hedonism, but will remain attuned to the voice of godly reason, we will be led to the green pastures of respite and the still waters of spiritual refreshment. All the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune this world can hurl against us are as nothing when compared to the rewards for steadfastness and faithfulness. It would behoove us all to fix our sights more consistently upon the things which are everlasting and eternal. This world is not our home. Those are lines from the valedictory address at the Utah State Prison, May 23, 1974. Inmate John McCrell, 50 years of age and having been behind bars for 30 of those. We began on something of a theological note. Let me close with that. I guess if we had to pick a theme to our existence, that which we know of, not a great deal about our past and the pre-existence and surely not a great deal about what lies ahead, but some, some indication, scripturally and otherwise, teachings of the prophets. If there is a theme, it, is, uh, it must be something to do with freedom. We know that part of the issue in the great council in heaven was how this was going to be done once we got here. And the Father's course was one of agency and choice and freedom to err but ultimately freedom to succeed. And as many safeguards and all the powers and all the universe were brought to bear to guarantee our freedom to the extent that we would wish it so. But we come and we, we do, we really do experience uh, bondage and prison. And I, I just thought here tonight, sitting on the stand, how, what a fortunate time we live in that our prophet is not incarcerated. I suppose if you took the sum total of religious history in the dispensations down to and including our own, you would find the brethren in prison most of the time. Uh, Israel as a whole, in servitude, escaping some Egyptians or some Babylonians or some Lamanites or their own fears or their own sins. I wish I could talk to I wish I'd been in prison so that I can make this very dramatic. I wish I could talk to you like Peter or Paul and have the angels come or Alma and Amulek and have the prison walls crumble or Joseph Smith who could write what may be the most sublime scriptural literature of our dispensation out of the very heart and center of a dingy and dismal and very dreary prison. We thank God that we live in such a time 
when the president and prophet of our church does not need to live in fear of that, and that we don't, and that Israel is not, at least politically or physically, required to go into bondage and into slavery. But there are these other kinds of bonds and there are these other kinds of prisons which we need to do a great deal to destroy for our own sake and all that we came here to do. I believe with all my heart, I believe as certainly as I stand here, that if we can repent of our sins, if we can be charitable with the, the sins of others, if we can take courage toward our circumstances and want to do something about them, I believe with all my heart there is a power, a Father living of us all, who will reach down and in the scriptural term bear us as on eagles' wings. When Moses was called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, Jehovah came down and said, I hear the cry of my people. I know something of their taskmasters. Their prayer ascends to me, and come now, Moses, go unto Pharaoh and set my people free. Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? And God said unto Moses, Surely I will be with thee. Surely, Moses, I would not ask you to do this alone. Surely I will be with thee. And then there were demonstrations, sticks that turned into serpents, and water that turns into blood, and that wasn't enough. There were plagues, frogs and lice, hail and locust, and that wasn't enough. There was darkness, literally, and finally death, and finally that was enough. And Israel was set free from political servitude to pursue a higher freedom if they would. And that question remains before us. There really is still stretching before you and I something of a desert and a sea, like a barbed prison wire between our Egypt and our Promised Land. We're all somewhere, I think, in that desert. But when they gathered, that little band at the Mount of Sinai, Jehovah said to the sons of Abraham, Thou shalt say to the house of Jacob and to all the children of Israel, See what I did for thee and how I bear thee on eagles' wings and brought thee unto myself. I have in my life been born on eagles' wings. I know with all my heart that God lives that Jesus is the Christ. I know that in a way over the last few months uh, 
but I've never known it in my life, and yet I've known it for a long time. But I know that Jesus leads this church, that it is his church, that he is the chief cornerstone around which a foundation of apostles and living prophets is laid. I know that we'll be with him again, that we will stand free for a time, unfettered and encountered, and we will recognize in those marks of the flesh something of his bondage and imprisonment and dying service to us. I know that we must repent of our sins and that God has to be just. But I take great delight and eternal love in the scriptural satisfaction and the words of the living prophets that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, and mercy claimeth the penitent. May you, in the words of Isaiah, wait upon the Lord and have your strength renewed, that you might be born as on the wings of eagles, that you may run and not be weary, that you may walk and not faint. May you so run, I pray, on the right road, and there be born as on the wings of eagles by a Father who lives and loves us all and gave his only begotten Son. For that I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.